So if you're just joining us or if you've slept a few nights like I have between now and last time, uh, Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus. Uh, if you come to church or in, in the honesty of your heart, you would say, you know, I know Jesus is great and I know he's the son of God and I know he's supposed to be the most important person in my life. But if I'm being honest with you, I'm just a little bit bored with him. Uh, Colossians is the remedy. Um, if, if you look at other Christians, you're like, they're so excited about Jesus. And why are they so, how can I be as excited about Jesus as they are? You need Colossians. Uh, if you find in your life distractions happening, uh, other things that compete with your time and your affection and your love and, and, and you see your heart moved away at times from where you know you ought to be and the, the things you ought to be doing, but you're just, you're caught up in all of this and you don't feel any motivation uh, to, to move back toward the things of God, then you need Colossians. Because Colossians is arguing that there is nothing better than Jesus. And there is no better place you can be than following Jesus. And there is nothing else in this world that will make you wiser or smarter or more fulfilled or more confident than a relationship with him. And this this is such a timely remedy to the mediocrity of Christianity today. And uh, so I think we need Colossians today as much as uh, the Colossians needed it in, in the day that Paul originally wrote it. So let me start the PowerPoint here and uh, share it with you, and, uh, and we'll jump in here. So where have we been? Uh, in chapter 1, Paul launches out of the starting block. I mean, he, he, he fires all five engines in his apostolic letter-writing pen to, uh, to launch us into this wonderful reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, just looking back at chapter 1, you remember some of these verses. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1. Uh, for he, talking about God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For he, talking about Christ now, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and were made for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why, Paul, are you telling us all of this? Look at the next verse. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. There's our theme. Paul desires for the Colossians and by application all believers, including us, that Jesus would have first place in every area of our life. Uh, maybe, maybe you struggle with this like I do, but, but every now and then I, I have this, this moment where I'm like, you know, I'm not really applying my faith to this area of my life. I'm just kind of caught up in how everybody else is thinking about it. And when you have those moments, what Paul is saying is bring Christ into that area. Let him take over ownership in that area. Think about what he would say in that particular context and then change what you're doing to bring it in line with 
a, a, a way that would honor Christ in that particular area of your life. And that, that's what he's saying. Jesus is who he is in part because he is Lord. And as Lord, we ought to align every part of our life into conformity with his person and in synchronization with his character. Okay, and that, that's, that's, that's the big idea of Colossians. Everything else, guys, is deck chairs. Everything else is going to be uh, arranging applications of that so we can see that. Now, what's going to happen in chapter 2 is Paul's going to take who Jesus is and what he's done, and he's going to first place, right? And now he's going to begin to address the occasion of the letter. Now, you may remember this. The occasion of the letter is there's this little dinky church in this little dinky town called Colossae. It used to be on a great trade route, and then they they, they built the bypass, and so now the town kind of dwindled, and Laodicea and some of the other towns nearby are getting all the traffic. There's a little church, but Paul loved this church, and he heard that there were some teaching, uh, some teachers and some teaching coming into this place that were out of conformity with the will of God. And so he picks up his pen to write that they would be warned against what uh, what commentators call the Colossian heresy. And we're going to get deep into the weeds of what this was today. And you say, that's great, Keith, but we're not dealing with the Colossian heresy today. Well, that's true. But we are going to talk about four distractions today, modern-day distractions that are similar to the Colossian heresy so that we can uh, have some application of our own in all this. Okay, so look at chapter 2. That's where we're going. My name's Keith. I'll be your tour guide this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Now, just stop right there. What Paul's saying is, he starts off and he says, look, I'm writing to you because I want you to know that I have been laboring and struggling for your spiritual benefit. Uh, This letter is part of that. Uh, uh, and, and other things that Paul has done. He says, I'm taking the time to write to you. I, I'm, I'm laboring and struggling because my desire is that you would know the fullness of Christ. And, and he uses different language here to describe that. He says, even though you haven't personally seen my face, I'm working hard, we are working hard as apostles, so that you may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining, now listen to this, all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. We say, understanding what? Look at the next part. It says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. So Paul is the original apostle of the run-on sentence. And if you're looking at this going, I don't have a clue what he's trying to say. It's okay. It took me many, many times. And I'm looking at it in the Greek text. But but, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm working hard so that you would know the fullness of Christ in your experience. That's basically all he's saying. And he uses some different ways of describing that. Uh, But but that's it. And what he's saying is, the, the, the end all of Christianity, the goal of what we're trying to do, is to have a full assurance and confidence in the knowledge of the person and work of Jesus himself in a relationship with him. That's it. That's all there is to Christianity, to know Christ. 
and to walk with him and to know him more each day. And of course, it's, it's out of that relationship with Christ that then we then go into all the world and present the gospel. That, that's our, that's our action plan. But, but the goal is to know Christ in all of this. And Paul says, I labored for that. I worked hard for that. And he's not bragging here. He's saying, it's my joy to do this because why? Well, he just spent the whole first chapter telling us what? Jesus is best. Jesus is great. And he's saying, because I believe that, because I am sold out to the reality that there's nothing better than Jesus, that's why I'm working so hard so that you would know him as well. And we talked last time, I think this is where we left off, uh, just about the, the, the reality of being encouraged, right, by those who have labored so that you might know and grow in the full assurance of understanding Christ himself. An application of this is to say, you know, we have all benefited like the Colossians benefited from Paul. We have all benefited from people that have labored and struggled and poured out their life so that we would know Christ. And I mentioned this before we left on our trip, and God was very kind. Uh, the the uh, my friend in college that led me to the Lord that lives in Nebraska, we got a chance to have dinner with him on our trip. We, we stopped there in Nebraska, and there he is uh, with his wife. And, um, and th- this is the human reason that I know Jesus today uh, in terms of his sharing of the gospel with me in college and his labor with me and dragging me to church and helping me to understand my Bible and, and modeling what it meant to walk with God. And, and like my friend Dan, you have people in your life as well, don't you? Maybe it's godly parents. Uh, maybe it was that mentor in college. Uh, I know many of you uh, had a, a campus group in college and there was a leader there who invested in you. Uh, maybe it was someone in your church, your pastor, your Sunday school teacher. Somebody labored for your spiritual benefit. And Paul is saying we ought to rejoice in that because we all know Christ because of people like this. So he says, I'm laboring and we can be thankful uh, for that. Okay, now look back at the second part of the text there. He says, um, the goal of all this is that their heart, verse 2, their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Now, Now look at what he says here. He says the goal is that we would know Christ himself and have a confidence and have a full assurance in him. You say, well, why is that the goal? Well, look at what he says next. For in him are hidden, what? It says here, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything we need to know in terms of a walk with God, in terms of navigating this life, in terms of understanding the challenges that uh, are behind Lots of turns in life, decisions that we have to make, relationships that we're struggling with, uh, difficult um, circumstances. Everything we need to know, Paul's arguing, is found in the person and work of Christ because in him are hidden all all the riches, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if that's true, just go with me on this for a moment. If that's true, why do we pick up our phone and go to Google first? Why do we reach out to that friend first? 
Why do we turn to some model or some example or some expert in the world first? Not that God can't use those things. He certainly can use those things. There's good things on Google and there's a time for seeking counsel. But what, but in our heart, do we turn to Christ first? If this is really true, why don't we do that? And what Paul is saying is, if Christ really is who he says he is, and he's done what he's, he's really actually done, and in him are hidden all the riches and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, why would you be distracted by people coming into the church saying, hey, yeah, Jesus is good, but here's the real secret to Christianity. Here's the real secret to a happy marriage. Here's the real secret to happiness in your life. And that's what the Colossian heresy was about. It was about people coming into the church, not denying Jesus. Hear me on this. They weren't saying Jesus wasn't important. They were saying Jesus was not sufficient. He's not enough. And that's what he's, that's what he's, now, now notice he, this is brilliant. He doesn't start his letter saying, there's this horrible thing called the Colossian heresy and you better be warned about it. And how, right? That's not what he does. He comes in and he says, let me paint a picture of Jesus for you, right? This is who he is. This is what he's done. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't this amazing? And then he's like, so why are you going after this other stuff? And, and I think just as a footnote to that, I, I think there's an apologetic in that. Meaning, when we're trying to help other people, maybe they're unbelievers, maybe they're, they're mediocre Christians, but in some way, when we're trying to see other people who are not following Christ and, and they don't see the wisdom of Christ and, and Jesus is not important to them, and, I mean, they're bored with Jesus, right? When we're trying to minister to people like that, maybe the better way to do it is not to critique them for all the wrong things that they're doing and all the worldly things we're seeing. Maybe the better way to do it is to say, friend, can I help you to see how great Jesus is? Can we do a deep dive into the personal work of Christ? And once we see him for who he really is, then all these other things that seem so compelling and so attractive are probably going to dwindle quite a bit in our minds. So I think we can learn from his example. But here's his point here, okay? As he transitions now to dealing with the occasion of the letter, here's what he's going to say. Don't be deceived by persuasive messages. So here it is. In Christ, back to verse 2, are hidden, or verse 3, excuse me, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay? Now, Paul, why are you telling us all this? Verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. I'm telling you this so you will not be distracted, that you will not be deceived, that you will not be turned away from the centrality of focusing on Christ to some of these other things that are going on. Uh, that's his point. Okay, so on your outline there, don't be deceived by persuasive messages. Remember, Christ is the only source of true wisdom and true knowledge. Look at verse 5. He says, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. What does that tell us? Think about this. What does verse 5 tell us about how the Colossians are doing in regard to the heresy, in, in regard to the false teaching? How are they doing?
This is the part we have to look at your Bible and think about it, okay? So go ahead and do that. How are they doing? They're doing well, yeah. These folks have not bought into the lie yet. They, they haven't been distracted from Christ yet. This is, guys, this is an apostolic preemptive strike. <laughs> this is Paul saying, I'm telling you this now, you're doing good, but don't be distracted as more and more. And, and you know, as pastors and elders today, we have to do this too. You know, as, as the elders of this church, one of the things we do is we scan the landscape of Christianity and we look for threats. We, we look for dangers, not because Grace Bible Church has bought into it, praise the Lord, but because we, we want to bring warning about some of the things that are out there. And you guys know every Christian generation deals with these fads, deals with these false teachings. We'll, we'll talk about some of the contemporary ones today, but every generation of Christians has, has to deal with this. And so we need to be on the lookout for things that are going to distract you from Christ. And, and Paul's, this is great, Paul's diagnostic is so simple. It's so simple. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to go read a bunch of books. Here's the bottom line, okay? Does this thing you're interested in distract you from Christ or compel you more to focus on him? That's it. And, and, you know, there's more that can be said on that, but, but in a nutshell, that's really what we're trying to do. But what, what does Paul say to the Corinthians? I'm afraid that you would be distracted from the simplicity and the, the purity of what? Have you read Corinthians? I am, he says, I am concerned that you would be distracted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In Philippians, what does he say? He says, I have, I have counted everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's consistent, right? No matter who he's talking to, he's saying, Christ, Christ, Christ is it. And, and if we're distracted by Christ, whatever, whatever the, the reason might be and however interesting it might be, that distraction from Christ is indicative that that's not a good thing to follow. And so we come back to this because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So don't be deceived. Don't be persuaded. He uses the word deluded there, right? You're you're tricked into following after this. And we'll talk about some of those in a moment. Now, Now, Paul doesn't have a section of Colossians where he says, okay, I know what you're dealing with and articulate it. He, he doesn't tell us exactly what this Colossian heresy was. But as we read this, you'll be able to pick up on some things, okay? We, we already have a little bit of a hint. And it's this idea that there's something better than Christ. And um, so let, let's put, our, let's put our, our theological thinking caps on and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And remember the serpent in the garden... And he comes to Eve, and what was his approach? Did God really say? Well, yeah, he did. But God knows in the day that you eat it, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. What's his approach? There's something better than God. Romans chapter 1 uh, Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the glory of, of, of animals and right and creation, right? For they exchanged the 
truth of God for a lie, and therefore they worshipped and served the creature instead of the creator. What's the lie? What's the lie that all humanity buys into at some point and in some way? There's something better than God. See, it, it, it's spiritual kindergarten, right? This isn't hard stuff. But that that is the crux of the matter here. So, so when we're dealing with life, we ask the question, is this distracting me from Christ? Or is this bolstering my faith to follow him all the more? That's the criteria. We don't want to be deceived by by teachings and teachers and books and blogs that come along and say, yeah, Jesus is important, but here's the real secret. Um, You guys have heard of the term Gnosticism before, right? Sometimes you hear about Gnosticism in regard to Colossians. Gnosticism simply means it's, it's hidden knowledge. It's secret knowledge. There's a secret handshake in Christianity, right? There's a, there's a, um, an unknown formula that, that launches you into being a super Christian. I mean, that's the idea of Gnosticism. And that's part of what's going on in the Colossian church. Okay. So he says, don't be deceived because Christ is the source of true wisdom and knowledge. Okay. Number three, live out your faith in Christ gratefully growing in the instruction you received when you first came to him. Look at where he goes with this. Look at verse six. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Now, now, what does that sound like? That is the transition phrase that Paul uses in almost all of his letters. Right. Here's Jesus. Here's the gospel. Trust him. Then what? Now walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. Okay, live out your faith in these areas of your life. And that's our transition phrase here. He says, if Christ is who he says he is and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge as you've received him, now walk in him. And walk is that common metaphor for the Christian life. He's saying, go live your life in conformity with your walk with Jesus. Go live your life in light of the fact that you've trusted him. And he gives us some specifics here. Look at verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. What's he saying? Put that together for me. What's he saying there? What do you think? Yeah, you got to look at your Bibles. What's he saying? Just as you've received Christ, walk in him. How are you going to do that? Not a trick question. Yeah. Act on the things that you know. You know, take what you've been taught and stay there. Take what you've been taught. Take that foundation and now build upon it. Uh, I, I mentioned... Uh, one of my favorite Al Mohler quotes is, don't just do something, stand there. If that doesn't make sense, ask your friend afterward, okay? And that's what he's saying here. It's, it's not like, okay, I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior, and now I'm going to get to the good stuff of Christianity. And I leave Christ sort of in the rearview mirror of my life, and I move on. And, and that, that's, that's crazy, it's Christ is everything. We, we build upon him, right? We grow in him, but we never move beyond him. And that's what he's saying here. Just as you've received Christ, just as you've heard this, you've heard these doctrines, now now stand there. 
and grow and mature and flourish. Rusty, do you have a question? Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we sure do. And, and, and notice, look what he says at the end of verse 7. He says, uh, you know, built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed, right? So, so stay there. Look at this, overflowing with gratitude. Maybe that's part of the key to, to what Rusty's saying is that we ought to be more focused on our union with Christ, our relationship with Christ, the solidity of that, that relationship with him that cannot be moved and, 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 and thank the Lord for that. Then look at, you know, the, the, the Christian performance meter of the day going, man, that wasn't such a good day. Oh, rats, you know. He's saying your, your gratitude is in Jesus and who he is and who he's called you to be, not in how you happen to be doing at any particular moment in your life. Not that that's unimportant, but I think the gratitude that he mentions here may be a part of what Rusty is saying about why it's hard to be content there. Our gratitude is because we're united to Christ and, uh, and, there's, and nothing can separate us from him. Okay, so live out your faith in Christ, gratefully growing in the instruction which you receive. Don't just do something. Stand there and grow, okay? Um, now, don't get carried away. Number three, don't get carried away by other priorities and philosophies that come from tradition and the world instead of Christ. Look at verse 8. See to it, this is the second warning now, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, then rather than according to Christ. So, so now he now he's going for it. Now he's he's got his he's got his laser sight right on the heresy. And he's saying, look, in light of who Jesus is, don't be distracted when you hear some new way of thinking, some new belief system, some new idea, some new philosophy, some new... And when you see philosophy, don't think Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, okay? I mean, that, that maybe eventually that... Think of philosophy as just... It's just a worldview. When he talks about don't be distracted by their philosophies, what he's saying is don't be distracted from Christ from other ways of thinking about life in the world. And, uh, and man, we, we, can, we can talk about a ton of those... Um, in, 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 uh, in Paul's day, as we're going to see, the Colossian heresy amounted to really two things. And, and uh, commentators argue about this, but, but there's two things we can agree on. One is there were teachers coming in saying, yeah, Christ is great, Christ is important, but he's not enough. He's not sufficient. You need this additional knowledge, this, this new information. Okay? Hang on. All right. Uh, so that's one thing. We need a secret knowledge, new knowledge beyond Christ. Christ isn't sufficient. The other part of the Colossian heresy was related to Judaism. And uh, you guys remember when Paul talks to the Colossians about the Judaizers, right? These are people that said, yes, we believe Christ is the Messiah and he's important. But we also believe that Christians need to continue to practice the Old Testament laws uh, as articulated in uh, the Mosaic Covenant. And that's the other thing and, and that's going on here, okay? So, so sort of the secret knowledge, Jesus is not sufficient, and then the emphasis of Judaism saying we need to continue to keep uh, Old Testament laws the way that the Judaizers taught. So that's what's going on here. So Paul says this, don't get carried away by that. Now, now how does that happen today? 
Here's how it happens. Uh, you turn on your iPad in the morning and your podcasts load up and your favorite blogs load up and it's like, this is the secret to overcoming sin in your life. And you're like, oh, I need that. I need to overcome sin. And you start reading and what you read is not taking you to the person and work and sufficiency of Christ. It's a method. It's a philosophy. Uh, you flip on your podcast and they got some guy they're interviewing, a brand new book, right? Here, here's the secret to having obedient godly children. The first time you say, will you take out the trash? They say, of course, mother. I would love to take out the trash. Are there other chores you'd like me to do today? I just want to honor Jesus today by honoring you and doing as many chores as I can take off your plate today. Is there anything I can do that? Right? And you're laughing. Yeah, right? That, that's, that, that, and then we go, oh, and, and for a moment, don't tell me this doesn't happen. For a moment, you're like, oh, and you have a little bit of hope in that, don't you? And see, that's what happens. And it's not that those things are necessarily unhelpful in some way, but if they're distracting us from the main thing, they are not ultimately helpful. And uh, so that, that's how it happens in my life. I don't know how it happens in your life. But, but Paul's saying, don't get distracted, right? Don't, don't get caught up in these things. Yes, and again, why should we not do that? Look at what he says. Look at the reminders here. Look at verse 9. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. See, Paul can't get past Christology, right? They said of John Bunyan, he was so filled with the Bible. If you pricked him, he bled Bibline, right? Well, you know what happens if you prick the apostle Paul? He bleeds Jesus. He bleeds Christology. And he can't get past this. He's just spent a whole chapter telling us about Jesus and his work. He's going right back to this stuff. Look at this. He says, remember Jesus is God incarnate. Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. If he really is God... Do you really need something else? Is there really some deficiency in Jesus that he's not bringing you everything you need if he really is God? Look at this. Remember, Jesus has made you fully complete in him. Verse 10. And in him, you have been made complete. This is crazy, guys. What he's saying is because Jesus is God and because he is fully sufficient... And in the gospel, we get connected to him completely and fully. All the fullness of his wisdom and knowledge, ready, is now accessible to us. We, we don't need another source. We, we don't need another pipeline of wisdom or power or instruction because he's made us complete in him. And, and in him, we have everything that we need. Paul, uh, Peter's going to tell his audience in, in, uh, in the book of Second Peter that all of, that Christ's divine power has granted to us, the believer, everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus is not insufficient. He's full and complete, and in him we have everything we need. Look at number three. Remember, Jesus has all rule of authority. He's made you complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. What's that saying? There's no court higher than him. There's no master higher than him. There's no philosopher higher than him. There's no king higher than him. Uh, he, he is 
the spiritual ceiling of everything there is. So why would we say, yeah, Jesus is important, but I need something else that's down here? See, that's the argument, right? You don't need anything else if he is the pinnacle of all rule and all authority. Notice, fourthly, Jesus has changed you spiritually. Look at verse 11. And in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And what he's saying is just like, just like physical circumcision in the Old Testament identified Jews as being a part of the covenant of God, so now that the spiritual circumcision, which is a, a realignment of our heart and a transformation of our heart to be in conformity with Christ, that that has that has resulted in a complete change of our life. If, if Christ was the, if, if you were dying of a failing heart and the surgeon says, we have a donor, we're going to do spiritual, we're going to transplant surgery, okay? And that new heart is what gave you new life. Right? He's saying that's what Jesus has done, right? He's done that spiritual heart transplant surgery. He's changed you. He's redeemed you. Why do you need another surgeon? Why do you need another doctor if he's done that for you? Number five, remember Jesus has united himself to you in his death and in his burial and resurrection. Verse 12, you having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This sounds like Romans 6, doesn't it? Uh, in, in Christ, we have been united with him in his death and burial and resurrection, and now we are raised to walk in newness of life. You say, what's he doing? He's rearticulating some of those benefits that he told us in chapter 1, arguing, why would you want something else? Why would you think you need something else in terms of your walk with God? Number, what are we on, six? Remember, Jesus made you alive and has forgiven you. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. J- Jesus forgave us. He dealt with the problem of guilt. Remember, this is courtroom language, right? This is courtroom language where the evidence is brought, we stand guilty and convicted, and Jesus enters the courtroom and pays our debt on our behalf, which means we are forgiven or uh, uh, forgiven of all our transgressions. And I, and I love this. Look at this. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus has taken all of our sins, past, present, and future, the debt that we owed because of those sins, and he has nailed that debt to the cross, effectively canceling that debt. Do you know how many people are looking for anything in life. They're looking for any secret, any help they can find to deal with the guilt of things that they've done in life. And they're turning to alcohol and drugs, they're turning to relationships, they're turning to addictions, they're turning to financial pursuits, hobbies, buying sprees, homemaker. I mean, they're doing everything they can to try to either distract them from that guilt or absolve that guilt. And Paul says, look, in him, 
He has canceled out that debt of guilt. And you can, you can walk out of that courtroom having heard from heaven, not guilty, justified because of Christ. And so we have that in him. Next, remember Jesus has disarmed and defeated all spiritual authorities. Verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. Uh, having triumphed over them through him. And, and we'll get into spiritual warfare a little bit later on in this letter. But here's what he's saying. There is no threat. There is no enemy. There is no circumstance. There is no power. There is no person. There is no difficulty that King Jesus doesn't stand over as Lord and Master. And as the good and kind Savior that he is, He says, I can handle that. Think about that for a minute. There is no danger in your life. There is no circumstance in your life. There is no person in your life. There is no internal difficulty in your life that Jesus is not fully sufficient to help you with. And if that's true... Why are we going other places? Um, It would be indicting to look at an average week of the average Christian and say, times he ran to Google, times he ran to God. And just track it. Again, not that Google can't be helpful. I'm not anti-Google. But I'm saying, if we believe this, we ought to be in the Word. We ought to be in prayer. We ought to be in, in, in calling out to Him for help. There's nothing... Can I say it? Jesus is better than Google! There, I said it. Okay. Um, so let's act like it. We, we believe that in our theology. Let's believe that in our practice. Okay? Now, with all that reminder, he, he went back to Christ, right? Now, we bring it back. Verse 16, therefore, if all that is true, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, in regard to a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, now what are those things? Real quick, what, what, what is he talking about there? Food or drink, new moon, Sabbath day, what are those? These are Jewish laws. Jews had dietary laws. Jews had holidays that they observed. And remember, in this day and age, everybody follows the lunar calendar, not the solar calendar. That's why they're talking about new moons here, because the new moons were how they tracked the months throughout the year, and that allowed them to say, oh, this is the month of Aviv. And on the 14th day of the month, we celebrate Passover, and then we spend a week in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? And that's how they tracked it. That was their calendar. And then, of course, the Sabbath day, we all know what that is, right? So that, that helps us to see that part of the false teaching was people saying, yep, Jesus is important, but you better be keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, Jesus is important, but no bacon. You know, keep those dietary laws. Jesus is important, but you need to celebrate the Passover. Um, you need, and, and then all, all these other Jewish uh, practices that we know of from Galatians and, and from the book of Acts and other sources there. So that's what's going on. Is, is it's a, it's a 
Gnostic heresy in the sense that there's secret knowledge. You need the secret knowledge. There's a, there's a spiritual handshake, secret handshake that you need to know. And then the other side of it is uh, a Jewish influence of saying you need the Old Testament law in addition to Christ. So what does he say? He says, don't let anyone stand in judgment of your faith against what Christ has taught. For example, Old Testament laws and practices that no longer apply to the believer. Now, okay, so if, have you read the Old Testament? Have you read this? Is it pretty elaborate? Is it like celebrate Hanukkah and get back to me? Actually, it talks about Hanukkah, but you know that it's not actually a commanded feast there. Passover, unleavened bread, feast of booths, Sabbath days. Is it like, is God pretty meticulous about that? Right? I mean, down to the, you do this at this time and this way and this, right? I mean, this, all the detail. It's like, if all of that was going to go away, why do it? Well, Paul tells us, look at this. The Old Testament festivals, the drinks and food regulations, the Sabbath days, the holidays. Look at verse 17. Things which are a mere shadow <clears throat> of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, what does a shadow do? If we were to go outside and find, I can see shadows right there. What does a shadow do? It sits there, Pastor Keith. No, no, I know, I know it sits there, but uh, actually they move. But if, if you look at a shadow... What, if you trace the shadow back, what do you get to? The source. A shadow points to the source of what's creating the shadow, right? And that's what Paul is arguing here. He's saying, remember that Passover thing? Remember the blood on the doorpost? Remember the lamb that was unblemished? And all those rituals, all those pages and pages that you skip over in Exodus, you know, to try to get, right? And, and, and you, what is that all about? It's designed to point to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that's, that's what it's designed to point to. So why don't we slaughter Passover lambs and put blood over the doorposts on the 14th of Aviv or Nisan, you know, in the, in the fall months? Why don't we do that anymore? Because the point was not, that was an end in itself. That was preparation. That was the pregame education so that when Jesus shows up and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we all say, oh, I get it now. So is there, now here's a, here's, here's a footnote. Is there anything wrong with celebrating Passover today? Not at all. You know, celebrate Passover if you want. What Paul's saying is, don't let anybody tell you what to do with that. You want to celebrate Passover? Celebrate Passover. That's great. But remember, Passover was not an end in itself. It was a pointer to Christ. And now that Christ has come, we don't any longer have to keep Passover. We don't want to need to be reveling about the shadow when we now have the actual substance of it. And that's what he's saying. So if you want to celebrate Hanukkah or the Feast of Booze or Passover or Unleavened, you want to keep the Sabbath day, as a Christian, you have the freedom to do that. But you don't have to do it because it was merely a shadow pointing to the coming of Christ. And that's what he's arguing. So apparently there were people telling them, you must keep the Sabbath, you must keep the dietary laws, you must keep the holidays. And that's what was going on. Okay. Now, at the risk of stepping on your toes... What are some modern traditions, philosophies, and spiritual fads that we face today? We don't have a Colossian heresy, but I came up with four. 
and there's probably a lot more. But, but when, what are things today that would tempt us to be distracted from Christ that may be parallel in some way the Colossian heresy? Here's number one, charismatic theology. This has been around for a hundred, couple hundred years now. Charismatic theology is, is broad and, and some of it is more benign than others. So I'm, I'm lumping it in here. But, but here's essentially what, what charismatic theology says today as a distraction to Christ. There is something better than Christ. You need a second work of grace where you speak in tongues. Uh, you need to experience the feeling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and this is, this is, you, you've seen some of this, you know, people do really bizarre behavior. Um, you, you know what, one of the real, one of the real bizarre parts of this is what's happened is the Holy Spirit has been reduced to an emotion. And uh, some of you have seen this. You, you watch certain worship bands and worship music. And as they're singing, they're equating the emotion that comes in singing with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you know what that is? That's Star Wars. Use the force, Luke, right? We're, we're, we're changing the Holy Spirit into use the force, Luke. It's a feeling. It's a force. It's an impression. So we need to be careful uh, and by the way, I have charismatic friends. I love them. And not every, not every charismatic believes all this stuff, okay? But some components of charismatic theology distract people from the person and work of Christ, usually by putting the focus on the Holy Spirit who has been redefined into a feeling or an emotion. So be careful of that. <clears throat> Number two, mysticism. This is the practice of relating to God through feelings, impressions, and emotions apart from the Word of God. Um, in, in our culture today, what distracts us from Christ is the belief that that voice in your head, that feeling in your gut, is the voice of God in your life. And, uh, okay, I'll say it. Popular book called Jesus Calling. The lady that wrote it, wrote it because she believed that she would sit down at her breakfast table and Jesus would talk to her. And then she wrote down what Jesus would say. You say, well, did he like walk into the room? Is it an audible voice from heaven? No, no. She was sensing, listen, she was sensing in her emotions what she thought Jesus was saying to her. Now, I don't know about you. My emotions are usually wrong. You know? Um, that's crazy to equate the voice of God with some feeling that we have. But that's popular Christianity today. Popular Christianity is I equate the voice of God with feelings and emotions. Here's another thing. New age spirituality. We need to talk about this sometimes. Many American health and wealth trends today originate in new age religion and philosophy, which introduce anti-Christian religious concepts in the realm of health. And um, you guys heard of guided imagery? This is popular in sports, it's popular in psychology, it's popular in education. And the idea is that through a facilitator, I begin to visualize certain things leading to success in my education or better performance in sports or something like that. And, and the idea is that th this is, this is going to enhance my, my wellness, this is going to make me better, this is going to make me healthier. Uh, and yet that comes from pagan religious systems. Uh, and it's all over. If you're into sports, education, psychology, it's all over the place. This, this visualization 
Uh, and, and there's other manifestations of this too. But, but Christians are like, yeah, I want to be a better baseball player. And, and they go right into it. They don't realize that what they're engaging in has occult practices tied to it. So we have to be careful of that. And then modern day Judaizers. Um, today it's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And it teaches that the Mosaic Law is still in effect and thus Christians ought to observe various Old Testament practices such as Jewish holidays and dietary laws. In, most, in a lot of extreme forms of Jewish roots, they will actually say that, that the, the New Testament that we have is not accurate, that we need a, a Hebrew version of the New Testament because they, they, they idolize the Hebrew Bible and, and other things. So, but what, all that is is modern-day Judaism. It's the same thing that happened in Acts, same thing that happened in Galatians, same thing that happened in Colossians. But, but the point is, we have fads and trends today that if we're not careful, we go, oh, that sounds really great. I'd love to sit at my coffee table and have conversations with Jesus. Wouldn't you? But it's a Jesus of the person's own emotion and imagination. It's not the true Jesus of Scripture that that, that person is talking with. So we have to be careful, guys, and... Uh, let, let's just heed what we've read here. Let no one act as your judge, right? Don't be distracted. Let no one take you captive uh, through these things, but to focus on the substance of Christ. Uh, because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is a sufficient Savior. And so we guard our hearts from things that would distract us from that. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that we do have such a wonderful and sufficient Savior. Guard our hearts to stay focused on him. Guard our hearts to know that a simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ is, is the procedure, is the method of how we grow in him. While there are other things that can be helpful, would you keep us from being distracted from the person and work of Christ, that we would walk with him. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we pray for discerning hearts and wise hearts uh, that would not be led astray from any of these things or, or anything like them, but we would stand on Christ alone. We thank you for the gift of your son. We're, we, we stand in awe once again of who he is and what he's done for us and that we are united to him. And we're so thankful for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.